Hi, and welcome to the GNC Research Project. I'm Michelle Hamilton-Page, and the episodes to come are essentially my doctoral research in podcast format. I used Grounded Theory to talk to 25 emerging leaders about what it is to be visibly queer in the workplace today. We'll talk about contested terminology like gender nonconforming. We'll talk about what it is to be non-binary, lesbian, and queer in the workplace today. I look forward to your feedback and to continuing the discourse about what this reality is like and what we're learning about what it is to be a true leader that can hold paradoxes. So welcome to the first podcast. This is part of the GNC research project, um, which has been four years in the making. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, get into exactly what this research has been about. But I'm Michelle, and I want to welcome you to the first podcast. And I am here with my co-host, Kath Wright, who um, I do another podcast with. It's actually Kath's podcast on force therapy. So I thought what we would do is bring our voices back together and talk a bit about um, the research that I've been involved with in large part because Kath has been part of um, the last year and some months of of my process of becoming a forest therapy guide, which is something I do uh, in another part of my life. Um, And that's required a lot of deep introspective um, practice. And so Kath's been involved in that in her own life, and I've been involved in that in mine. And our podcast, Kath's podcast, talks a lot about that and you can see the, or hear the first season on my channel as well. Uh, it's shared and then Kath has gone on to record another season. Um, but it's that sort of shared experience and um, work and a practice that causes us and asks us to be deeply reflective that has uh, had me have a lot of these conversations with Kath as I've been doing the research, but also as I've been thinking about, you know, the way that I sort of move through the world and I'm growing and healing. And um, so who better to talk to you and who better to have sort of ask me probing questions about what we've learned in the last year and a bit than Kath. So welcome, Kath. Did, is there anything you'd like to say and add? Um, Highland Quiet Life is your is your website. Is there anything else that we want to add to to the conversation about you? It is. Yeah. No. Thank you. I just um because we've I think you touched on it. We've only known each other for about fourteen months or so. Um, but it's um it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to discuss your research with you. Um, you know, personally, um, I've always felt that lived experience, research, and stories are, are so important to helping the world grow and for people to understand and for people to heal and it's an absolute pleasure to be able to delve into this further with you so thank you fantastic thanks for being along on the journey um so so you've got you've shown up with like three pages of questions which is amazing i'm thrilled um so let me just give a little a little quick preamble about what's sort of coming with the podcast so i anticipate that probably there'll be five or six episodes we're going to kind of keep them short and sweet um, what we're going to be covering is uh, what has has been uncovered through the process of my my doctoral research. And this first podcast is just to talk a little bit about what the research is, a um, bit about who I am, about the program that I'm in, you know, how we've gotten to this point today. Um, and this point is where I've done coding, line by line coding, through a qualitative um, research process called um, constructed grounded theory. And uh, I've done analysis on that on that research uh, after 25 interviews with fantastic participants. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that research is, what the research question is. And uh, I'm gonna hand it to Kath because Kath's got pages of questions. So I've got things I know I wanna cover, but I'm so excited about the, the idea that I'm going to cover them probably through your questions. So hit me. What do you got for me? 
Well, before we delve into the actual research topic itself, um, you've introduced yourself as Michelle, um, but could you just expand a little bit more about yourself, um, what's brought you to here, and what's your actual, your actual drive for starting the research before we talk about what the research is? What was your drive behind this? Yeah, that's fantastic. And also your question mirrors the first question that I asked all my research participants. That's really incredible. And it's actually a shout out to one of my committee members, Jake Pine. Um, it's one of the ways that, that uh, he opens his research because it gets people thinking about their identity and why, why they're joining the conversations. So that's amazing. Um, so I, uh, I am you know, uh, someone who's done a, a doctorate after years and years of working in, um, in healthcare and in and around humanitarian tech work. And uh, uh, when I went to do my doctorate, I thought I would do it around health and tech. And then as I started diving into, it's a doctorate of social science program in the interdisciplinary um, studies uh, department at Royal Roads University here on the West Coast uh, in British Columbia in Canada. Um, I had everything ready. I, I had a funder for my research. I was going to do research on, on health and tech. And I started reading deeply into social theory and was like, this isn't, this is where money lies, but this isn't where my passion lies. So um, the research that I'm doing is around butch lesbians, butch dykes, um, butch queers, uh, non-binary queers. Um, the term I've used in, in a bunch of cases is gender non-conforming. Um, lesbians. And so it's looking at the impact of being really visibly outwardly queer in the workplace and how that's gone. And so I know what my experience has been. And so what I wanted to do with this research was to see what has other people's experience been and put the call out there to say, if this is an identity, if this little slice of this identity, because it's my doctoral research, I I'd love to do a massive spectrum, but really it also, this is an identity that, that, that I in, inhabit. If this maps onto yours and you'd be interested in talking about what it's like to be visibly queer in this way uh, in the workplace, I'd love to talk to you. So it started from a place of like being really conscious to you that there's no part of me that wants to be exclusive. There's no part of me that narrowly defines these things. But what I was really looking for was sort of the nexus, or if I make like an X with my hands, looking for where homophobia and misogyny might come together in the workplace and really impact um, uh, people that actually inhabit a body that very much presents female and it's either curviness or whatever the ways are that we that we read that that gender and um, outwardly uh, as individuals and then also signaling um, that we're queer. So how does that get taken up in the workplace and what does that look like? And that was the starting point was looking at what was that like? I said, thanks very much. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be um, following up with this research proposal to the funders and, and went this way. And then the focus of all of my, my studies, so three years of, of my um, coursework, my independent study, my literature review, all of that has been with the focus of looking at um, queer theory and workplace theory and trying to see what has been written, what has been studied, what research um, has been done around this issue as it intersects with, with queer theory and workplace theory and where there's a gap in the literature, where there's a gap in the research. And I found it and is big enough to drive a truck through, um, which is appropriate for me as a very big butch dyke who likes to drive trucks um, and backhoes and ATVs <laughs> and motorcycles and Jeeps and other things. Um, but we'll talk about stereotypes later. Uh, but yeah, so it, it was perfect to say, okay, great. There's a gap. There's, I'm interested. There is an interest. There was a call for more research 
um, on this topic. And uh, so that's, that's how I got here and that's how I took it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> follow-up questions <laughs> well I think you've answered several all in the one there but yeah. I wouldn't expect anything less so um so the because I was going to ask you about you know if there are similar studies and things out there so you, you've kind of clarified that one so I suppose my other part of the question is something that we touched on before we started recording and and whether the term gender non-conforming is widely widely used because until I'd met you it's not really a phrase I'd ever heard but to be fair, I've never really met anyone that's specifically studying or researching that either. And, you know, I, I have friends that would identify as butch, um, as well as lesbian, gay, transgender. And, and I just wondered if um, that phrase is something that people would widely use to identify. But if also the research in part is also there to open people's eyes to the reality um, of people that would identify as that. So you maybe yeah. expand on that. It's a great question. It's a really contested, it's a contested term, right? And and the one of the cool things about um, queer theory and even queer identity is that so much of how we identify is fluid and it changes, it changes over the years. And, and that's one of the things that's come up in the research. So I started with that term um, because I was trying to really name the idea of being something that that isn't fitting nicely into a binary. So the other term that gets used a lot is non-binary. And even that term ends up being a bit contested, um, but it's one that I'll probably move more towards in, in, the, in the findings and certainly one that's come up as I've asked people to identify um, you know how they how they self-identify, what their identity is, what they think about in terms of their own gender. Um, Judith Butler talks about uh, how fluid um, terminology and language and identity is, um, and that there's a there's some interesting ways in which we can kind of pinpoint where we are in history by looking at some of the ways that we use language and where and how we identify. Um, so I'm moving. So I use that in terms of like actually putting together my research proposal, actually putting together the call for participants. And even if it's contested, it was a great starting point for me in terms of like, how do you identify? Is this something that, that resonates with you or not? And that in itself is a great place to start mm -hmm. out with both the call for participants, um, but also with conversation about how, how people see themselves. One of the problems with using anything that starts with non, in this came up with a research participant who spoke really eloquently about it, all of my research participants were eloquent, but when he talked about the fact that you're identifying yourself in relation to something that's, that you're not, who wants that identity? So I'm trying to figure out ways that we can talk about being perhaps binary resistant or resisting binaries. Um, certainly a lot of what's come up in the research without getting into it, because we're just doing the intro today, is, is looking at um, why and how we need to contest some language and, and, and what you know, language sort of means to us, but also like looking at other ways that we can conceive of things um, that don't force people into binaries and that might not even direct people to think about those. Um, so yeah, I will be moving away from the term gender non-conforming. It's certainly been all over um, the research that I, or the, yeah, like the lit review and the research that I've done to the point of doing the interviews. Um, but there is no question that um, speaking to 25 people, mostly in the global North, uh, has impacted the way that I'm I'm conceiving of, and in fact, the theory develops from the actual research. 
Okay, and because um, I was, it's interesting. I was trying to remember a fascinating conversation we'd had, and I couldn't remember what it was, but I could remember it was fascinating. But what you've just said has reminded me of having a conversation with you about using this term non-binary or non-conforming. You're starting off on a negative. You're mm-hmm. you're saying you, you you're not just a something, whatever that something is. Yes. You know, you could say you're a cheese plant. You know, but yes. you're saying I'm not i'm non and it's this negativity behind it already um and it's yeah it's and and i think you know until i'd met yourself you know there's that reality of actually you know when you're able to walk in people's shoes and actually see specifically firsthand what they experience and and when we met in la if you don't mind that there was a very snippet into a you know this stuff is real because you had a situation but then there was also a situation after the situation when we were in la and i wondered if you would mind expanding on that as just an example that's fantastic i i'm so happy to do that uh yeah so (laughs) as as happens and as it came up in my in my in my research let's let's start with this so let's start with the non or the negative part so what the research what i want the research to do and what these podcasts what i want these podcasts to do is really interrogate why are we so stuck on this binary like Mm. why are we so stuck on needing to like in in so many cultures put people into buckets of male and female and really that's what it comes down to that's the binary right so there is a there are binaries that exist and the and the question is why why do we need to do that why are we forcing people to um, identify genders or to identify with the gender or even to identify as not fitting into that, which is where that language comes from. And some of it's the limitations of language. And we've seen people do really cool things with with, um, pronouns using like Z or Zay Mm -hmm. and and trying to get out of that. I've heard, we've heard from Robin Wall Kimmerer in terms of trying to talk about plant life and time trying to like talk about how um things that are other than human have an embodiment and and have a spirit and talk about them not using it right and using things like that also refer to something like zay um so we know that there are ancient and other kinds of movements that that have have looked at the fact that we don't need binaries that that there things can be in between and things can be fluid and they don't have to be sort of I feel like when I think about it I feel it it is weighted to the ground like it's like tethered to these two oppositional or binary things that um you know we'll get into when we talk about the research but really sort of boxes us in. And so the beauty of this study is one of the things that it's shown is here are people who think way outside of those binaries and outside of that box, embody it. In fact, very, very little conversation when I did like a word um, bubble that comes out or a a wordle or a, a word cloud that came out of my research, all of the interviews pulled together I didn't see a lot of uh, words that were used that actually used those two binaries at all. Mm -hmm. Um, They certainly came up in terms of the way that we're forced into them. Um, And we'll talk about that more, but that language isn't something that even in the conversation dominated the conversation. So from a starting place, sitting down and talking like this, these 25 participants, these folks that are of this identity that we're talking about come to the conversation already outside of that. And in conversation with me, who they then see on this Zoom, on these calls, because uh, we did interviews on Zoom, um, they could also see that that how I present and how I'm visible also is in some way 
um, aligned with with who they are as well. They see they see we see each other and we're part of what we call a discourse community and how we talk and how we name. Even though there's also a great variety in the way that we talk in, in about ourselves. So when we were in LA, so we were doing the forest therapy course in the Arboretum in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking I'm in California. I've been in California before. I haven't been in LA before. Um, I'm in California. It's, you know, it's, hey, free love and, you know, whatever the way that California is, that uh, progressive yeah. draws those people to it is a hotbed for, um, you know, all kinds of progressive stuff. I was in the women's bathroom and I had someone tell me that I was in the wrong bathroom and they did it in front of a colleague. And uh, this is one of the things that comes up in the, in the research all the time. And, and um, the way that, that I'm conceiving of it and, and talking about it is around um, policing, gender policing. So we see this very often, people that are visibly queer like us. So butch lesbians, butch queers, non-binary queers, non-binary lesbians, however we want to talk about it. So I refer to myself as a, as a butch dyke or butch lesbian. So I don't look like I fit a binary. And very often in places that um, are gendered or that gendered, like a bathroom, um, I will have people police me and tell me I don't belong there or hold the door open like that person did at work and say no one else is allowed in here. Um, and so it, it in this time of like expansion and doing this course on force therapy, which is essentially guided um, meditation for a week, I came crashing down to earth around, okay, <laughs> I don't fit, right? I'm not like the others. I'm, I'm neither fish nor fowl, whatever it was. And uh, so I, I thought about, did I want to share that with the, the, the broader community of learners and um, knowing that there would probably be a range of responses to it, but also knowing that our, our instructors are fantastic and would have most likely a great response. Um, uh, so I did, I shared it with the group and, um, and people like you and, and Kath and Anna and, and people were great and were supportive and the leaders of the group were obviously fantastic. And just sort of as a heads up, like when you're thinking about the reality of what it is to move through this world, you can have someone coming to a forest therapy session, stop at the bathroom on the way because you're going to be out for a couple of hours and have something like this happen, right? Where it's like, you don't belong here um, is the message. And uh, um, one of the messages, there are lots of them. We'll talk about that too, because bathrooms come up all the time. Um, but then I had a colleague the next day <laughs> at, the <beginning, laughs> at the beginning of our, of our walk, which is when we were going to perform, uh, you know, for the first time as, as forest therapy guides, uh, and the forest is the therapists. We are, but the guides, uh, getting folks into the forest to, to find there what they need. So you're coming, I was coming from a place of like feeling like, open and prepared and ready and how is this going to go and one of our colleagues um one of the group members one of the people being trained said well i have a solution why don't you just use the men's washroom <laughs> and my response was from a, like a very open-hearted place because i'm not a man and uh it just and they went on to <laughs> suggest that it would there, be there was a hole yeah there was because a i i had my back to you because i was speaking to some friends and i heard her say this to you and i think every bit of me just went oh oh god <laughs> and it, and i was prepared to like turn around and kind of launch in this sort of but i just heard you so calmly and just say because i'm not a man yeah. and i was just like wow <laughs> um yeah that. that's wild i didn't realize that you heard it um yeah, yeah so it's so it's that it's that interaction but in the workplace 
Mm. that I'm also looking for, right? So if you if you imagine, like that's me after a week of meditation, trying to then have a, a conversation with that person about basically being non-binary. And I understand um, that it makes some women uncomfortable. And so I, I try to speak softly or some, some days I don't have that much, whatever. And same thing with her, like like in terms of responding. And it's a, it's a moment, it's a teachable moment for me. I'm a walking billboard for this stuff. And this is very often what happens when you're visibly queer, right? So um, imagine that happening in your workplace, in a place where you're bringing your professional self, where, you know, everyone that I spoke to thinks about how they dress for the day, thinks about what is professional for whatever their work is, um, comes to work ready to, to, to be that professional that they've either trained for or they're learning on the job or they've been educated to do or whatever it is. Um, whether they're an artist and they're bringing themselves, if their identity also is that they're a person of color or if they have a disability or if there are other things that sort of intersect with that gender identity and sexual orientation, how is that also being read? How are they, how are they having to navigate that? Um, but generally, the, you know, as we can see both with that, <laughs> the washroom and then that comment, the message is you don't fit. And the message is enforcing a binary in that space of the bathroom. But then in that space, like a day later that someone took time to think about and said, it would be better if you went over here because you, as I see you, and as I'm learning who you are, after a week of hearing you talk, you fit better over there. And this was a woman that said this to me, you don't fit in this binary here. Um, so that's, that's what I'm looking at. That's exactly one of the things that, uh, that and it, bathrooms are things that came up, as I've mentioned. Hmm. And it's um, it's it's weird um, if you don't mind me saying because <laughs> thinking about that when I was kind of thinking about you know what did we need to talk about and the questions and things it made me remember that in my in my previous job I was there for seven years and I think there's something in your workplace these are people you have to see every day mm. you have to sit next to you have to talk to you have to work with them um, you know people in the street you walk past them and you don't necessarily have to see them again. Mm. Um, and in my last week, in my last job, so I'd been there for seven years, somebody told me that before I was employed, a meeting was held with the senior management and the providers as to whether someone who looked like me at the time could work for this organisation. Mm. And that was discussed throughout all of these people that I then had to go and work with without knowing. Mm. Um, and it's it's a there's something very different about workplaces as well. Um, and yeah. the judgment, it's the different contexts. So yeah. Um, yeah, it made me remember that this week as well when I was reading bits of your research and stuff. Yeah. yeah that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you mind me asking, like, what do you think it was about your appearance that they were, that they were. Uh, it was because at that time I weighed about 460 pounds. Right. So, um, and it was working for an activity provider. Right. so certainly didn't fit the stereotype and certainly didn't look like anybody um that had ever worked there and in fact on my first day I was taken into a room and asked to remove all my piercings because they'd never had anyone that had more than one ear one ear hole let alone tongue piercings and things um so yeah and but a lot of those I didn't find out a lot of this until I was leaving um and I didn't look how I did look at that point, um, I look drastically different. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. Yeah. yeah. So, or it's not, or what we're talking about is that it's like the, whatever the visibility is that doesn't fit with whatever it is. And imagine if you weren't hired, you would never have known that happened. Right. No. And that's one of the things that that's one of the things we're talking about. So if you, if you take 
that exactly what you've just identified and add on gender identity and sexual orientation, or possibly what their assumptions they were making about you based on piercings, right? So piercings and, and, and body size or body shape or how you dress in relation to what clothes fit your body, depending on where you are. Yeah. All of those things are what, what also intersect with, and when we talk about them um, in relation to the, the workplace theory and also queer theory and feminist theory, we're talking about them as like what we would say are interlocking systems of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. So the stuff that you were facing were, were phobias and issues that they had, perceptions that they had based on your embodiment, not yeah. like, not like it's like in the, and so that, that comes up in the research specifically around being client facing. So this yeah. talked about it. So that conversation probably also had some piece in it that was like, it's fine if you're in a call center, but if you're client facing or dealing with our customers, and that would probably have been I'm guessing part of their conversation. And that that's exactly the exactly the kind of thing we're talking about and the kind of thing that, yeah. that came up for sure. And, and interestingly, the moment, because in the last year of my employment with them, I more than halved my body size. Um and it switched and all of a sudden I was a face of all of our corporate business, all of our uh, journalists, yeah. um, all of the big money stuff. And I was the face of it. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to remember that and people's preconceptions just from what they see, yeah. whether they know or think they know who you are or what your orientation is. It's just what they see and the stereotypes that we have in our head as to what's acceptable and what isn't. Yeah. So, um, But let's keep talking about you. Well, I mean, but this intersects, there's no question. Like there were definitely people that I, that I interviewed who have had absolutely have this like similar experiences. That's what I'm saying in terms of intersecting relationships. And certainly there have been times in my life when my body is bigger and I really struggle to find clothing that looks good, that I think looks good and looks professional in relation to how what how I wear my gender in, in the clothing, yeah. and that's also come up in the in the interviews too. So it's not it's not irrelevant at all. Um, yeah, thank you for raising that. That's so. I'm going to generate a list of references of what I'm talking about in the in each of the podcasts, but if it, and also references of what, whatever comes up. So how? Um, so let's have an overview about how you actually have conducted the research and what kind of time period you've done that over as well a bit of context um about that side yeah fantastic okay so um so what i did in the in the three years of the coursework is to read deeply into the literature around workplace theory and around queer theory to get a feeling for what's been written what's out there um what's happening in the field uh what the discourse is where there are gaps as i've mentioned um and and what that ended up turning up is uh is that there is this gap that when looking at uh, looking at um ad, you know addressing with my research so the way that i started to do that is through um a research methodology called um constructed grounded theory and uh kathy charmez is the person who is sort of the um the lead the thought leader in terms of this methodology two of my um committee members um, for my doctoral committee are also people who are well versed in grounded theory and so basically what it what you do is you do some deep deep listening um, from the community that you're researching. So for, in my case, it was conducting um, semi-structured interviews and I'll talk more, I'll talk more about what the questions were. 
um, with, in, in my case, 25 individuals to try to get an understanding of, of the response to that research question about what it is like to, um, to live and inhabit um, a body that is visibly queer, um, that gives off those signals, um, and in a workplace. And what's really interesting about grounded theory is that what Sharmaz talks about is what, is what we're looking at is we're looking for the how and sometimes why participants construct meanings and the actions in specific situations. So I'm looking for meanings and actions. Those are the things that you're looking for. And very often when you're doing research, you're looking for like themes and those kinds of things. So in my case, when I'm looking at and then going what um, constructed grounded theory has you do is conduct the interviews, think about what you're what you're you're learning, write memos about those things. So like reflect on it, and then have that thinking in those memos um, impact the interviews as they go forward. So as there were things that came came up about the why and the how of, of how people were navigating in their workplace from this place of being visibly queer. Um, and as the language was emerging, it started to shape the kinds of things I was either probing for or asking as it went along um, to get to 25 interviews. And those memos are the things that I was sort of reflecting on coming out of those conversations end up really influencing the categories of how the the research gets um, thought about and communicated into theory at the end of the process. Um, one of the things that this research does is asks us to go, well, there's a few things. So one, I think it works beautifully with like political movements. I think it works amazingly as a research methodology um, around liberation theory, around human rights movements, um, because it asks us as researchers to know who we are in our own identity and our own location. And I'm white and I'm, you know, aspiring to be middle class and I am um, English speaking, I'm um, living in Canada, I'm a settler, all of these things that I'm bringing to an interview, I'm aware of my privilege, I'm aware of what I look like, I'm aware of how I move through the world within those interlocking systems of oppression that we're talking about. And I'm exposing that in an interview or talking about people in relation to like, who they are, asking them about that and how they work um, and, and, and move in, in those again those systems. Um, so it's a what we call a reflexive praxis, practice that has to happen, right? So that I'm thinking even after the interview about how I might have influenced it or those kinds of things, right? What, the, what came out of the conversations? What did I miss? Um, were there cues that I missed? Were there things I need to probe better for? Those kinds of things. So it's this self-reflective practice that also works really well when you're looking to ask people like political and, and often very difficult questions about identity. And in, in the case of what ended up um, coming up in my work um, over and over again, uh, harassment, discrimination, and, and how people have experienced that. Um, so then once we get the, the interviews done and the, the transcripts done, then what Sharmaz, what Constructive Grounded Theory has us do is go by line by line and do what's called coding. So looking for the how and the why, the practice and the action and the meaning making that's happening line by line with those interviews. Um, and I did 10 of them by hand, printed, a, did 10 of them by hand and the rest of them I did line by line um, with, uh, with a, a research software. And it's a powerful, powerful, powerful practice. It also means that I know those interviews so well. <laughs> like I know that I, 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 I'm so aware of what I didn't ask, what I wish that I had asked. And, and within the process, you can also go back and probe for more. Um, but the memo finding and the things that came up between the interviews ended up 
taking that question and even the language as we started off and you asked, like, what do you think about this language? It just ended up taking it and turning it and shifting it and, and having me think so deeply about it. So as to then come up with um, which, what is grounded theory. So Brené Brown uses this kind of research um, and, and still does. Uh, so if you've read any of, of her work, Daring Greatly, um, Dare to Lead, which is a book that I'll refer to when we talk about the findings, it's grounded theory um, around vulnerability. So yeah, so, so grounded theory basically ends up out of those interviews comes a theory. So where there's a gap in the research, what we're looking at is how does this theory um, then speak into that gap? And so for me, grounded theory is not very popular in my institution. I'm sure it's not popular in a lot of other places, but I couldn't imagine using a research methodology that did anything other than going to the voices of the individuals who haven't been that researched and saying, what is your experience? And then having everything we're going to talk about in the next, we're talking about me in this one, but we will we'll pivot from there. Um, we'll be talking about 25 people's experience. And yes, I was going looking to say, I know what my experience has been in the workplace. Is it generalizable? Can I look at it and say, is there a pattern? And what I have found out is there is in fact a pattern. So what comes out of that research is theory. And so it's, it's naming the how and the why, right? So we're looking at the um, how participants construct meaning and actions in the workplace. So how you enter the workplace, what does that look like? What do you look like when you go to an interview? What, and then I would probe for the meaning of the word, like if they use the word butch or if they use the word out or if they use the word queer, what does that mean to you? Can you identify that for me? Um, if they use terms like queer coding, can you back up and tell me what that means? And I would say to them right off the bat, like I'm going to ask you some really basic questions that you may look at me and be like, you know the answers to this idiot. Why are you asking me this? So it's because I'm trying to construct um, and pull from them how they make meaning. Um, and that's, uh, that's the, the, the incredible um, 25 conversations I've had. So grounded theory gives rise to theory where there isn't theory and that has happened. And there are ways that I have conceived of it that I'm hoping lands with, works for, reflects back to this community, um, you know, what it is that they're looking for. People very often entered the research excited to be part of it, prepared to be part of it. They'd, they'd done thinking, very often they were early for the Zoom call. Um, they were uh, they were not always easy calls. They were they were not always easy conversations for participants to to recall um, what had happened. But to a person, they had all done like a lot of work to figure out what to do with what had happened. And so um, I haven't heard back from anyone that it was anything other than positive. In fact, I've heard back from several people that it was um, transformative to have these yeah. conversations. In part because no one's asking. In part yeah, because people that have, voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, those parts of, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that, but even just to say now that if nothing, so first of all, something has to come of it because I want to, I want to release to the world how amazing these 25 people are. And, um, and, and they aren't, I knew like two of them, but the rest of it, it went out through, um, you do a call out through your oh, friendship. Okay, right. So yeah. my next part of my question yeah. We've done a question. So the next bits are asking how you found these people yeah. and if you also looked to kind of have a spread of age and professions or was it just more about focusing on people that could identify with the term gender nonconforming um, rather than actually trying to get a spread of a, a different demographic. So 
Awesome. Go. Thank you. Thank you. Go. Um, so yeah, so obviously you want diversity within your, within your, um, within your research cohort, uh, within your participant cohort. So I, I didn't go specifically asking in any way, shape or form. I, I put the, the call for research out to um, a, a fantastic network and a, um, a print journal and an Instagram account called Butch is Not a Dirty Word um, through Esther Goodoy, which is amazing. And, um, and then through friendship networks of folks that are, are part of the queer community and not, I think you posted it, like tons of people posted it for me all over the world. Um, I got an incredibly, like, fantastically diverse group of people, mostly again from the global north. So it would be interesting if I, I don't know if any of my colleagues um, in Kenya shared it. I'm not sure whether they did or not, but um, anyway, I'm not, I don't know who shared it. I don't know where they shared it, uh, but the people that got a hold of me by and large, I think there's a few people towards the end that I didn't get to interview, but I pretty much said yes to everyone. If you opted in, if you read yourself into this and you wanted to have this conversation, I was like, yeah, that's great. Let's have this conversation. Um, I ended up getting a great uh, cross section of, of individuals from their twenties to their sixties and, uh, and um, some, some diversity around race, absolutely diversity around class, diversity around ability. Um, And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm thrilled with those that, that opted in that wanted to have the conversation and look forward to hopefully as this, uh, as this work grows, um, you know, finding other people that that wanna that wanna have the conversation. I will say this: I couldn't get funding for this research. I talked to companies here in Canada who have at the center of their um, marketing a lot of work around we're we're rainbow wash, we're we're queer positive, where we call it rainbow wash, we're we're like yay pride. Um, I talked to people within employee research, um, sorry, resource groups um, for LGBTQ2S um, plus um, people in their companies. Uh, specifically ones that have like some pretty decent uh, corporate funding and uh, no one saw the fit. No one saw the need. Um, And so it's self-funded. My research is self-funded. So my, which basically also means that my degree and all the work that I did was also self-funded. So um, I worked full time while I did my doctorate and, um, and then did this research and had it transcribed and, um, and doing the research, but I, I couldn't get funding. I could get funding, for the health and tech stuff that I was going to do, I could not get funding. So while we know that there were people that were eager to have the conversation, while there's a gap in the research, while there's a, a desire, for the, the participants wanted to have this conversation, even when it was really hard, I couldn't get funding for it. So so yeah, so the, the folks that stepped up, um, they were transformative conversations for me as well. And honestly, if I'm being honest, if there was anything I was put on this earth to do, it felt like it was to have those 25 conversations. I felt blessed to have had that, I'm not religious in any way, but I feel as an individual, they were some of the best conversations I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 25 people I would hire and work with. I would, if I could, <laughs> I would. Um, they are emergent leaders, every single one of them. They ended up being feminists, every single one of them. And, uh, and they were fantastic conversations. So I'm really looking forward to talking about, about what, what we learned together. And that's the other thing that Charmaz talks about. You construct the interview together, you construct meaning together. And so I'm not a separate researcher, not part of the conversation. I was part of the conversation. Um, I saved a lot of what I had learned in my research until the end of the conversation would stop transcribing, Mm -hmm. stop recording, not transcribing, recording and then talk about stuff. And then very often something would come up and I turned the, I'd turn the recording back on because something salient came up. But there were a lot of conversations about resources. There were a lot of conversations about 
how do I, like, what have I learned? What do I know that um, from the research or from the learning I've done about training and policy that could apply to, to workplace situations that we were talking about in the interview that were currently happening, that were going on right then? Like, what had I learned in the research? What did I know from my career in health and tech and working in access and equity that might, um, that might have an impact on, on them? Okay. And I think, um, you know, you, you making that choice to go down a, the easy option of a funded research um, or to actually know true to your ground, this is what you're on this earth to do and you're going to fund this research. Um, when, like you say, you know, people want to have their voices heard and this needs to be, this, this gaping hole needs to be researched, but companies aren't willing to step up and pay for it. So there's this... Um, on one hand, it feels very unsupported from people that weren't willing to step up and support. But then linking to something that you talk about in some of the writings that you sent over before we arranged to do the podcast, um, you mentioned uh, some butch giants um, and that you have your, their photos on your desk. Um, and it does feel like there's this background of support that you have got, but you've found and drawn on that support that's underneath you. So can we go off on a slight tangent for a moment and actually who is your virtual team that you've got on your desk? Who are these butch giants and why, why are they your support network? That's amazing. Um, uh, so, well, I mean, there are so many, so, uh, and, and, and again, whether people identify or not as butch, I mean, starting with butch is not a dirty word is a great place to start to be like, who identifies, how are they problematizing this term? What does it mean to them? Those definitely are the giants and the community, um, that has been so important. Esther's work is amazing. Um, there are a lot of folks that are involved with that, that are incredible. Um, so reading into the into the literature and into the research has not always been easy. So mm-hmm. I'm immersing myself in homophobia and harassment discrimination. And I have experienced that in the workplace myself. I've experienced it in, in washrooms all around the world. Um, a, a gender, a binary, a, a enforcement, a policing, a you don't fit, you're not right, you're not whatever. And, and, it, and you know, I haven't like run around the world and things about my identity. Like I'm not trying to provoke. I'm just being me. And in fact, as with a lot of the people I talk to, they're very careful about how they take up space and who they are and how they collaborate and and wanting people to feel safe and certainly wanting women to feel safe in spaces like bathrooms. So um, it's been difficult. It's been hard to do the reading. It's hard to study this stuff as, as, you know, my colleagues that are doing work around indigeneity who are indigenous are are also finding um, colleagues that I've, that I are good friends that work around race and racism and doing anti-racist work. So I'm conscious of the ways in which the world, while you're trying to study a thing and bring it to light and make change can also feel like it's just beating the shit out of you. Um, so when that's happened and, and I get a little stuck sometimes because it's hard to have experienced harassment and discrimination and then read into it and go, oh, fantastic. Um, the antidote to that is 25 conversations about pride and resilience. I can tell you that. I can tell you that the emergent leadership that I find um, this idea of being non-binary, this idea of holding paradoxes and the kind of leadership that's emergent out of that, that for me is that those are the giants. But as I've also gotten, um, you know, sometimes a little bit stuck, um, I have photos from, which is not a dirty word on my on my um, laptop, on my screen, I have um, Alison Bechtel, I have Katie Lang, I have, um, um, oh man, Hannah Gadsby, I have, um, 
I have old, old photographs of, um, of, of butches and right here at all times. I have things that remind me that um, there is a community of, of proud, resilient people making art, um, talking into the void, um, taking up space. Anytime I'm in a hospital and I'm in a hospital gown and I look like me in a hospital gown in the you know, women's section about to get a mammogram, I'm aware that any other butch dyke that's been there before me has made the, the place safer. And so I remind myself that these are the shoulders that I stand on or stand side to side with. And we may have differences about using terminology, um, but seeing each other and making space in the world and taking up space in the world makes the world a better place and a safer place. So I surround myself with those images. Thank you for asking me about that. <laughs> okay, so you've got the data or you've got these incredibly valuable personal stories from people. Um, who Summarize who you hope this research is going to inform. Who do you want to get this data in front of? Where do you see that the gaps are going to be filled? Um, where's it going? What are you going to do with it next? Thank you. I appreciate the question. It's a great question. Um, and we can, I'm going to answer this question and we can start wrapping up just so you know, because we, we will have covered like a ton of it. <laughs> it's my last question. <laughs> oh, amazing. So the things that I wanted to make sure that I covered off um, in the research uh, are are things that have come up in workplace theory. A lot of it is what we call critical workplace theory. So looking again at, at acknowledging that there are interlocking systems of oppression that are always at work in how we um, move through the world. Um, so I wanted to look at how mentoring happens. I wanted to look at intersectionality or the ways in which an identity um, um, it, um, impacts uh, how and why uh, people are behaving the way they are. I wanted to look at um, systems of oppression. The cool thing that Charmaz talks about is um, around this methodology that constructivist grounded theory provides the tools for studying power and inequality. The ability to define taken for granted concepts and critical inquiry and to show how and to what extent they're enacted in the empirical world and in our research practice. So we're seeking detailed knowledge of the multiple dimensions of life and we're aiming to understand members taken for granted assumptions and rules that reveal participants' views, their feelings, their intentions, their actions, as well as the context and the structures of their lives. So within that, I'm looking at what's happening in the workplace around mentoring, around leadership. I'm looking at um, questions around policy, whether there is, whether there isn't policy. So what I produce needs to speak to that reality. So it needs to come back to and get used in the lives of the people, be useful in the lives of the people that I interviewed, which we call like knowledge translation or community, um, bringing it back to the community, um, community-based knowledge translation. Um, so what I'm putting together is what's called a doctoral portfolio. So there will be like a TED style talk. TED's been absolutely unhelpful in doing a, a organizing and doing a TED talk, a TEDx talk. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do a video that will be released that basically is the sort of 101 of, of, of kind of what we talked about, like yeah. what the, the identity, what we found that can be used by anyone to say, here's this great research. Here's what it, it showed us and it's emergent and, do you want to learn more? Fantastic. 
the mm-hmm. podcast is sort of the 201 in terms of looking at why and what, and then um, and what, what we learned. Um, and I'll have these conversations with you um, and, uh, and do that probably across five or six podcasts, depending on this will be a longer one. Hopefully there'll be shorter ones where we'll be dipping into the findings and that'll come back to the memos and the categories and the things that are emergent around the theory. So that can be used by anyone, anyone who's a participant, sending it to a boss that you're working with or studying that you're doing, or, hey, there's this really cool emerging thing that, or this piece of research, hopefully it'll be useful. Then I'll write an article that most likely will speak into that critical workplace theory place that it'll go to a peer reviewed. Um, and I say then that has to happen <laughs> next month. <laughs> that, that goes to like a, a peer reviewed um, journal. And that hopefully will be used to advance the discourse in that gap in theory. And the gap, I think, it will be where people are talking about um, things like research or things like, sorry, um, um, mentoring and leadership and what this identity is, what it is like to be um, LGBTQ 2S plus in the workplace. Um, yeah, so that's that's what we're we're trying to do is advance that that discourse and that dialogue. And because it ends up being also about non-binary and ends up being about sexual orientation and about gender identity, it can apply more broadly. It isn't just yeah. about this identity. Um, as again, another fantastic participant said, um, this whole binary thing isn't working out for anybody. Like it's not working well for anybody. Like, and, and when they said that in a, in a panel, in a business panel, as a business, um, um, as someone who works in, in IT and, and, and project management, um, the room exploded into cheers and it wasn't like a <laughs> weird room. It was a room of individuals being like, yeah, it's not working for us. Right. Um, so, so that's, interesting and fantastic and again hopeful and speaking into that um that place of 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 resilience and pride and emergent leadership um so yeah that's what i'm hoping it does and i'm hoping we spark conversation about like this binary thing it's no good like we need to be done with it we need to figure out ways to to check it out it's not working um and it's boxing us in and it's holding us down and it's grounding us in ways that we we aren't soaring with leadership we aren't we aren't utilizing the kind of diversity that would blow things open. Like think about design thinking, all the ways in which we need to be like unfettered and find ways to throw that off. And this is a really simple one. Like why do we need to enforce a binary? It needs to stop. Why do we need to be homophobic? Why can't we see these two things are joined? Why as a queer community, can we not be more comfortable with folks that visibly don't necessarily fit that binary? And it might also signal that they're queer. So what's happening around homophobia? What's happening around gender identity? How do we how do we advance that conversation? That's what that's what I'm hoping this will do. Well, I really look forward to the next few episodes and unwrapping and delving into it deeper with you. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Thank you so much for being part of the the conversation. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. Um, I have a lot to say. There's a lot that other people will have to say, and I appreciate taking your time. Um, to do this and I appreciate the thought you're putting into it so uh, that's our first podcast Uh, we we will reflect on how it went as part of the process Kath will give me feedback and uh, and we'll go from there we look forward to talking to you again thanks Kath thank you I got the last word you got the last word yay Thank you for listening to the GNC, also known as the NB Research Project. You can learn more about the research and the project at nbresearchproject.com and get involved in the dialogue about the work there.